Well, good evening. Aren't you excited and encouraged? Amen. Thanks for the one person who's listening. Good. Oh, over there. There you go. Well, you know, I was sitting there just thinking, as the doors open to the outside and the wind tunnel effect is working, how thankful I am we don't have to worry about the air conditioner not working anymore, right? Amen. Now make sure that you're doing well on the offering so we can make sure that the heater works, right? You never know, right? Uh, just another reminder, the uh, Young Adults College snack is at our house. If you've never been there before, good luck finding it on your GPS. Yeah, I told uh, somebody this morning, if you put in Kettering First Baptist Church, you'll get really close. If you put in our address, you'll probably end up somewhere downtown Dayton or uh, not someplace not ever anywhere close to where we live. So which is the app that works the best? Which? Google Maps, right? All right, don't use Apple, use Google Maps, and you'll get close. And once you come, you'll see our house right there by the road. Um, the driveway's on the right, and just keep driving. Don't park in front. Just keep driving. There's a big uh, place behind our barn, uh, lots of parking back there, all right? Follow the light, smell the food, you, you make your way back to the house. All right, now take your Bible and open to Romans chapter 8. If you peer off into the not-too-far distance, you can see chapter 9 coming. All right, we're moving uh, towards the end of this tremendous chapter, which uh, some consider to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. It's a portion of Scripture that concerns the issue of the assurance of our salvation. Sometimes that's also known as the doctrine of eternal security. It's a tremendous declaration of the fact by Paul of the fact that God is for us. God is for us. He's not saying there won't be difficulties in the Christian life. He's not saying there won't be people who try to stand against us or oppose us. But he is saying that ultimately God's for us in Christ. And there's no opposition worth taking account of compared to the fact Again, that God is on our side. And because if we're reconciled to God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's enmity towards us has been removed in Christ. Therefore, our greatest problem, our greatest potential adversary, and most people don't realize it, but your greatest problem in life is not all your issues. Your greatest problem in life is the fact that you live in a universe with a holy God. That's mankind's problem. Our greatest problem has been removed, the potential adversary of a holy God. Because God has reconciled the relationship to himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is now for us. So that really should be a tremendously encouraging portion of truth. Again, it's just a great portion of scripture. It really deserves careful attention, and that's what we're doing. We're slowing down because it's a a portion that is just full of great, rich doctrinal truth that I think we really need to get our minds around. And it's a portion of scripture that is indeed deeply rich in doctrinal truth concerning our eternal security in Christ. And I thought I probably ought to at least remind you that, that Paul writes to these folks really as a pastor. Uh, he, he's not an academician. He's not teaching at some theological seminary. He's, he's not a theologian per se. He is, but he's not in, in that practice. He's a pastor. He writes with a pastoral heart. 
because he, again, knows the importance of his people understanding sound doctrine, doctrinal truth. Because he knows there's a tendency in our heart to doubt. He knows there's a tendency in our own heart to doubt. He knows there's a tendency for the a devil to try to come along to try to discourage us and depress us, to try to rob us of our joy and our confidence in Christ. And Paul doesn't want that. As a pastor, he doesn't want that. As your pastor, I don't want that for you. I don't want you to be robbed of the great joy and confidence that you should have in Christ. I don't want you to lose the great blessing of encouragement uh, that you should have with concerning your relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I told you last time that the doctrine of eternal security is one that is often maligned, one that is misunderstood, uh, one that is often spoken against and spoken against improperly <clears throat> by many that, again, just don't really understand the word of God. They think they do, but they're not. That's why James says, not many of you be teachers. Many people have a wrong view of salvation, a wrong view of the gospel. Many people have a man-centered, unbiblical view of both, of salvation and the gospel. And all these who uh, speak against uh, eternal security have an improper view of justification. They fail to understand the truth that once a believer is justified before God, he's never going to become unjustified. Once a true believer is saved, he's never going to return to a condition of being lost. God has promised that. And God's made that promise through grace or by grace through the finished work of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's going to make sure that happens. Because our eternal security is a done deal, as it were, in the mind of God. Again, look at verse 30 of chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 30 whom he, this is speaking of God, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So again, our salvation is entirely the action of God. And all of these uh, activities of God's grace are past tense. Again, telling us that we're eternally secure in Christ. That this is already a done deal again in the mind of God. There's nothing or no one who can separate us from the eternal, unchanging love of God that He has predestined us to, to be conformed to the image of His Son, and then predestined us to eternal glory. Uh, again, uh, being conformed to the image of His Son assures us of heaven. Right. So it's already laid out there. <clears throat> now let me just read the, the verses because these are the ones we're working through. Uh, 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 verse 31 to the end of the chapter, just to help get our minds around the, this portion of Scripture. Uh, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tremendous truth. Now, as I said uh, last time we started working our way through here, there, there are really five questions that the Apostle Paul is asking concerning who or what might be able to defeat God's plan 
uh, regarding our eternal destiny. And I told you the questions that he's asking are rhetorical questions. Uh, they are questions that the answer is so obvious they don't really even uh, require a reply. That's why I've entitled this uh, series in this portion Five Unanswerable Questions uh, with a reference to the idea that there's no need to reply. The answer is so obvious is, is what I mean by that. Now, I know that there are seven question marks in the text, but there are five main questions concerning the things real or imagined uh, that could possibly be able to defeat God's plan for us and God's purposes for us in Christ. They come in two categories, either persons or circumstances. Persons or circumstances. So initially the question is, is there any possibility that a person could overturn God's eternal plan for us in Christ? And then the second half, is there any possibility that any kind of circumstance could ever overturn God's eternal plan or purpose for us in Christ? And the answer to both of those is a resounding no. So it's a tremendous error to believe that a person who is genuinely saved could ever lose their salvation. So let me just give you the questions here just so that I can bring them to your attention so you can see them. Last time we were together, we made it through the first two in our study. Again, the first question is found in verse 31, if God's for us, who's against us? Uh, Verse uh, 32, the second one, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Third comes in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Fourth question is in verse 34, uh, God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, verse 31 starts off with saying, what then shall we say to these things? And I told you, it's really not a question per se that belongs to the set uh, of questions. Really, it's rather a mode or a formula, uh, a tool that Paul uses uh, to uh, move from exposition to the conclusion of his uh, argument. What shall we say to these things? So the question obviously is what things? And I told you it's basically all the truth that he's pro- been proclaiming that uh, concerns uh, salvation, our eternal security and salvation. Uh, not just chapter 8 alone, but all the way back to chapter 1 when he began to introduce the, the gospel and the issue of the gospel. And he started uh, moving towards the argument of justification by faith alone. These things means the entirety of the gospel. All these things, everything that God has done for us in Christ uh, to secure our salvation. What then shall we say to these things? And then I said that really prompts the first rhetorical question, uh, where again, the answer is so obvious, again, it really doesn't need a reply. Uh, and, and the question is, if God's for us, who's against us? Right? I mean, the gospel, again, is God's gospel, right? It's not ours. We didn't invent it. We didn't write it. We didn't think it up. God is declaring it to us. So if God's for us, who's against us? And I told you it's really not sense in the sense of if or maybe, but, or, or yeah, if God is for us. It's not if in the sense of maybe, but it's really sense. Since God is for us. And since God is for us, who could possibly be against us? And the answer is obviously no one. No one. No one. Not, not hateful men, not wicked men, not Satan or demons. Not even ourselves. No one. No one can separate us from the eternal love of God in Christ. No one could ever stand between God, the holy God, and his sovereign, omnipotent purposes and power. Nobody has that ability. No one can stand in in that place uh, because God has proved over and over again that he is for us. The one who has repeatedly proved his love for us, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 
the spiritual truth behind this second question was that God has already, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser, right? God has already, already done the greater thing. He's given to us the greatest thing he could ever possibly give to us, that being his son. Therefore, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Since the father did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely and really graciously is the idea there, give us all things since he's done the greatest thing for us already in Christ since he's provided forgiveness of sin and eternal life that was tremendously costly for him costly for the uh, for the God the Father costly for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because it costs the the suffering and the life of the dear Lord Jesus Christ if God's already done the greater thing can he most certainly do the lesser thing that is make sure that no one or nothing can ever come between us and our eternal salvation the answer of course is that is uh, yes God will if he's done the greater thing, he's most certainly going to do the lesser thing. Now, remember, I told you that in that statement, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. I said there's four great theological truths or four major facts concerning uh, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was something that God himself did. Again, it's his action. The cross is by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God uh, to deliver up Christ. He did this. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Secondly, I told you that that verse, that statement, that really tells us the terrible problem of sin, uh, the enormity of the issue of sin, because nothing but the giving up of Christ and Christ alone could atone for it. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And then I said, thirdly, if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, that certainly means that no one or nothing that you or I could do would be able to separate us from the immensity of God's forgiveness to us through Christ. There's no way possible. There's no way possible that a person or a circumstance or even our own sin can be greater in power than God's love for us in Christ. I'm going to say that again. There's no way possible for a person or a circumstance or even our own sin to be greater in power than God's love for us in Christ. Because if that was even a remote possibility, if there's anything out in the universe that's more powerful or possibly could be powerful or more powerful or anything that possibly could separate us from the love of God through Christ, or if there's any other way of salvation, then God the Father would not have delivered up his Son to the horrors of the cross. There's nothing or no one out there. But the fact that God chose not to spare his own Son but deliver him up proves the omnipotent power of God's love and his forgiveness to us or for us through the person <coughs> excuse me, of, of Jesus Christ. There's no greater power. There's no way possible, again, that God would offer up his son if there was the, the remote possibility that something or someone could come at some point and, and separate us from that love. But there's not. God is omnipotent. Fourth theological truth in that phrase is that he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us. Again, I told you that speaks of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. The Father delivered up the Son in our place, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our place. He died for us. He died because of us. He died for us. He died for our sin, that we might escape the penalty of sin. And he was delivered up so that we might escape the power of sin. First uh, Peter 2 and 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we're healed. Christ came to set the, the captives free. 
to escape the penalty of death, to escape the or the penalty of of sin, to escape the power of sin, and then one day to escape sin's very presence, because He's promised that we have been glorified, that we'll be one day with Him in glory. I mean, again, just tremendous truth upon truth, what God has done in and through Christ. Again, God's greatest gift, God's gift of Christ. By that gift, he'll absolutely make sure that no one or nothing can ever separate us or nothing or no one can ever come between us. Between his love, his eternal plan for our security and our salvation in Christ. Jeremiah 31, 3, the Lord says this. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's the way God loves his people. That's the way he has loved his people. That's the way he still loves his people. He loves his people whom he saves through Christ with an everlasting love. Again, it's meant to give us encouragement, hope. And again, we're going to continue to see that God, our eternal security, again, is not bound up in our actions or anybody else's actions, but it's bound up in the person of God. Our eternal security is bound up in the persons of God, the persons of Christ, their actions. It's entirely based on grace. It's entirely based on God's mercy and God's grace through Christ as he satisfied his justice and not violated his holiness by the, through the forgiveness of man's sin through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just tremendous truth upon truth. Now tonight we're going to come to the third and fourth questions. And again, the third question is found in verse 33. Verse 33, just tremendous truth here too. Who who bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is God is the one who justifies. Again, and the verse shows the full, complete security of our salvation and God's eternal plan of redemption. Now first, notice how we are identified. Notice the terms. Terms are always important. How does he identify Christians here? He does not say... Who will bring a charge against us sinners? doesn't say that. And although we may be saved, and true Christians indeed, don't we still often, when we refer to ourselves, we refer to ourselves in the category of sinners. I know I'm saved, I know I believe in Jesus, but still I'm just a poor, miserable, wretch of an individual, a sinner. I don't know, that might be true of you. I don't know everybody. But what I do know is that's not the phraseology Paul uses here. He doesn't use that kind of terminology. He does not say who will bring a charge against poor saved sinners. Nor does he say who will bring a charge against those who have already accepted Jesus. What he does say is who will bring a charge against God's elect. Right? God's elect. Electos. The elect of God, the chosen ones. Those chosen by God. Who will bring a charge against those chosen by God before the foundation of the world, right? Ephesians 1.4. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has set his eternal love upon? Who will bring a charge against those whom God sees as precious and a peculiar people? Who will bring a charge against those whom he purchased by his own blood? Who, who, who will bring a charge against them, whom, those whom he has set apart for his own purposes? Again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It would suggest to us all that in the spirit of uh, utmost humility, uh, we uh, need to understand that none of us has or done anything whatsoever to do with our, our choosing, right? There's none of us who've done anything to do, had anything whatsoever to do with our choosing. 
Therefore, I would suggest that probably this is the way we should first consider ourselves now in Christ as Christians, as the elect of God. Because, again, far too often we're man-centered in everything. We're too man-centered in our thinking, too man-centered in our theology. Again, we often refer to ourselves as those who have, quote-unquote, accepted Jesus. Or we're nothing more than miserable sinners. When the fact is, the Bible says that if we're in Christ, if we're a genuine believer, that we have been chosen by God himself. It's his activity. Therefore, the emphasis should be on God, not us. The emphasis should not be on us and what we think or what we have done or who we are or who we even think we are. But the emphasis should be on God and who we now are in Christ. That should be the emphasis. The emphasis should be upon God, his his eternal mercy, his grace. Because Christians are first and foremost the elect, God's elect. Now, when Paul uses that phrase, the elect of God, in, in the context of trying to talk about the security of salvation... That's, again, meant to give great hope and great encouragement. Because that's the doctrine of, uh, of eternal security, the assurance of our salvation. It brings encouragement and hope. And I think, again, that Paul uses that term intentionally, God's elect, uh, because, again, he wants to remind us that none of us finds ourselves understanding the things of God in Christ by ourselves. None of us understands the truth of the Scripture because we're so wise, because we figured it out. We're noble, we're strong, we're deserving. None, none of those are things are true before a holy God. Right? We, when he uses that, that term, God's elect, he's reminding us there's no boasting before God. We only stand in the position of understanding because of God's grace. There's no boasting whatsoever. So again, when he uses that term, God's elect, I think it's really a call to worship. It, it's a call to praise God. It's, called, it's a call to the adoration of God in Christ for their kindness towards us in making us objects of mercy rather than leaving us where we deserve as objects of God's great wrath. That's where we deserve to be. But God has made us object of his mercy. So the question goes out, who? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And uh, the word charge really means bring a legal charge against somebody. Uh, Come forth with an accusation. Uh, Come forth with um, uh, some kind of charge that will stick. And when he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect, that whole statement with the emphasis on who is really a legal challenge. Who is going to do this? And not only is it a legal challenge, I think it really is a legal summons. Who? Who will come to the ultimate court of the universe? Who will come and stand before the ultimate bar of justice and declare or bring an accusation or a legal charge against one of God's eternally loved people? Against one of God's own? Who? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? I think when you read that sentence properly... I think it has to be played out very much like in the book of the Revelation. And when the seventh seal is broken in Revelation 8.1 during the tribulation period, the Bible says there's, for about a half hour, stunning silence. Who? 
Ever been someplace where it's so quiet, the silence or the lack of any noise becomes deafening? Most of the time, we don't allow ourselves to be in those places in the world in which we live because we're too caught up with every kind of media, every kind of noise, radio in the background, whatever. Stunning silence. So the Supreme Court room of the universe, as it were, is open. The court is now in session. The judge is sitting behind the bar, behind the desk, the bench. And the call goes out, who? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And again, I'm telling you, there's absolute stunning silence. Who's going to bring a legal accusation, accusation against God's elect? And again, the answer is no one. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Why? Because God is the one who justifies. That's the answer. God is the one who justifies. God himself is the one who declares not guilty. Literally, the verse reads like this. Who shall bring a charge against the elect ones of God? God, the justifying one. That's the emphasis. God, the justifying one. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Who will lay anything at the feet of God's elect? Who will uh, lay any kind of charge against those whom God has chosen and those whom God has justified? The question is really full of sarcasm. It's full of ridicule. The Phillips translation, which is kind of an obscure translation, but nevertheless it says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen? The judge himself has declared us free from sin. It's pretty good. So again, in the Supreme Court of the universe, the challenge has been thrown down. Who? Who will bring a charge? And again, there's absolutely no one who will, no one who can, come forward with any kind of legal or legitimate accusation, any kind of real charge against us. Because the Supreme Judge has already rendered the verdict, and the verdict has been declared righteous. The Supreme Judge of the universe, God the justifying one, who knows the law perfectly because, after all, he is the lawgiver. And it's his law that men have violated in their sin against him. Therefore, he would know all the possible claims against us as lawbreakers. And since he's the sovereign ruler of the universe, and his jurisdiction as judge, therefore, has to be throughout the entire creation, throughout the entire complete universe... Therefore, again, the supreme lawgiver, the only one who can properly interpret and understand all the nuances of the law, he has already declared his elect justified. Therefore, there's absolutely no one in the entire universe, no one in the entire cosmos, if you want to use that word, that could possibly come at any time and successfully bring a charge against us. Isn't that good truth? That's an amen truth. That's on the level of there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because there's now, therefore, no condemnation. Amen. Justified, declared righteous. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God, the one that justifies. No accuser can legitimately step forward and successfully bring a charge against us because there is no charge. There's no charges against us who are in Christ. So for the Christian, Paul says in Romans 6.14, he says, sin shall not be master over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. Again, chapter 8, verse 1, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law could not do, or what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no accuser who can step forward, no accuser who can successfully bring a charge against us, because in the courtroom of God, again, there are no charges against us. Legally, the charges have been dismissed in Christ, for those who are in Christ. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. There's now, therefore, no condemnation. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. Our account paid in full. Tremendous news. Encouraging news. Freeing news. Again, no charges because the debt has been paid in full by Christ. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that Satan, who is the great accuser of the brethren, as it says in Revelation 12.10, I know that he delights in coming before God and saying something along the lines of, well, just look at that man. Just look at that woman. Look what they're thinking. Well, listen to their language. And you call that person one of yours? You call that person a Christian? Such a sinner. Why, I don't even think you'd ever find a single immoral man who sins any more than that guy right there that you say belongs to you. Satan, again, how could you possibly love him? How could you uh, look at this uh, person who's so unworthy and see how unworthy he acts of your love? Satan says, I wouldn't even allow him to follow me. He's so bad. How could you have this man for yourself? How could you send your son to die for him? Day and night, day and night, day and night, the accuser of the brethren slanders the redeemed. But again, day and night, no matter how much he slanders the redeemed, no matter how much accusation he brings before God, when he comes into the courtroom, he's silent. When, When the devil steps into the supreme courtroom of God, the God of the universe, he has to be silent because there's no legal charges to bring. He has no legal loopholes, no legal charges for him to successfully bring a legitimate charge against God's elect. And Satan knows that. He knows that the supreme judge of the universe has already declared the case closed, the forgiven sinner justified, completely righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now I know also that at times we ourselves might accuse ourselves. Our conscience is working overtime, saying very much the same kind of thing as the accuser of the brethren. Well, you call yourself a Christian? Boy, just look at you. I just look at the thoughts of your mind. Just look at the words from your mouth. Just look at the works of your hands. You call yourself holy. You call yourself a follower of Jesus. What a joke. Don't our minds often accuse us like that? But I remind you that neither Satan nor our conscience is the final judge of the universe. Neither Satan nor we ourselves can ever bring a legal charge against us as God's elect because God is the one who justifies So shall God, the justifying one, listen to the accusations of anyone towards those whom he has already declared just, right, righteous, in right standing? And again, the answer is absolutely no. Why is that? Because again, the answer is God's the one who justifies. Now, we've talked about this many times, this issue of justification. How is it that we stand before God? How is it that we have been declared righteous and justified? Is it because of anything in us, anything that we've done or not done? And again, the the answer is absolutely not. 
The only reason that we can stand before God is because God in his mercy has granted us who believe the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're sinners. And yes, in and of ourselves, there's absolutely nothing worthy of us that God would show any kindness towards us, but our God is a God of greater mercy. His great mercy is greater than our sin, right? He is a God of great mercy. He is a God of great love. And the text says in Romans 5 that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. He died in our place as our substitute. He bore in his body our sin. Therefore, the righteous demands of the law have been met for us in Christ already. And God has placed our sins upon Christ and judged our sins in Christ's body. And in return, God gives to us Christ's perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I quoted a lot around here. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become, here's the word, the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God in Christ. God places all of our sins upon Christ. God treats Christ as if he had committed every sin that has ever been committed by anyone who would ever believe. And in return, as he punishes Christ, in return, God imputes or credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ who stands in our, as our substitute. He, he imputes or credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ so that God might treat us as if we have lived perfectly Christ's life before him. So again, we stand before God not based on our own, not based on our own inherent righteousness because we don't have any. We stand before Christ, before God because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us, imputed to us, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. Therefore, again, it does absolutely no good for the devil to accuse us before God. He can accuse us all he wants. I mean, the fact that we're not yet perfect, that's obvious to everybody. I mean, what's the issue? And even if he brings accusations against us that are true, it's not sufficient grounds for our damnation because all of our sin, all of our sin, past, present, and future, all of our sin, past, present, and future has already been paid for in full by the dear Lord Jesus Christ. And we, on our side of it, have access to that gift by belief, right? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be safe. Believe what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ. And again, God declares that through Jesus Christ we're justified and righteous. Again, not because of our own actions, but they're declared justified and righteous because of the person and the actions of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to us. Our salvation, again, is not won by our own or credited to us by our own righteousness. It's credited to us by the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ. So again, those who think that once a person is genuinely saved, they can lose their salvation by something they do or something they don't do, don't understand the gospel of grace whatsoever. Since we don't create or earn salvation by something we do or don't do, we certainly can't lose our salvation in the same manner either by something we do or don't do. Our only hope of standing before a holy God is the righteous Savior, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness, His righteousness, again, credited to our account, imputed to us. Romans 5, verse 17. I'm going to have you look at it. Romans 5, 17. Back just a couple pages. 
For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, that's Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, listen, and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It's that great section of Scripture, the so much more of the person of Jesus Christ. Christ has done so much more to to, uh, gain our salvation than Adam ever did in the losing or the separation that he caused between man and God in the sin that he brought into the universe. It's talking about the exaltation of Christ. So again, back in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has foreknown? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has predestined? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has effectually called? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has justified? Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has glorified? And again, the answer is overwhelmingly no one. No one's going to be able to come to the courtroom of God with any kind of legitimate charge that will stick. Because if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There are no charges. And again, justification, as I told you, is much more than just a declaration of not guilty. It's much more than an acquittal, much more than a pardon. To be justified by God means that we've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our holiness. Our holiness, our righteousness comes from him. For by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Our righteousness is in Christ. So again, Paul asked the question earlier, makes a declarative statement. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Again, he's reminding us in that question by way of a de- declarative statement that our righteousness comes from Christ. Understand truth. Because God's the one who called us. God's the one who elected us. God's the one who justifies us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. You know what? With absolute certainty, you can know that nothing or no one will ever come between us and our eternal salvation. You're eternally secure in Christ. That's what the scripture teaches. And again, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, stop listening, stop reading, stop uh, supporting the guys online who don't know what they're talking about. Let's not, let not many of you be teachers, James says, because there's going to be a greater judgment. Romans 5.1 is true. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God, real, objective peace. Once and forever, for all time, peace with God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then we, who are the objects of God's mercy, we have been, verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24, we've been justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration I save his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. It's all about God, all about Christ. So again, our text says, what shall we say to these things? 
If God's for us, who's against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How we not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So let the devil bring his accusations. Let your conscience speak lies, and then this is what you need to do. Write it down. You need to, write, you need to remind the both of them of sound doctrine. That's what you need to do. You need to remind both of them of sound doctrine. You need to say something on the lines of, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I know I'm not worthy of God's love. Yes, I know I'm very bad. But let me remind you, devil and my conscience, of the truth. The only reason that I love God is because God loved me first. I may be a sinner, but God has treated me as an object of his mercy. And he's placed his eternal love upon me, and he's marked me out to spend eternity with him. I know I'm not perfect. I know I sin. But let me tell you something. I'm not relying upon myself. I'm not relying upon anything I do or don't do to save me. And in fact, I'm not even trusting in myself to do anything to keep me saved. Because my salvation has been won and kept by Christ. And I have absolutely no confidence in my flesh that is in my human ability, but I have all the confidence in the universe, in my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Confident of my eternal security, I'm confident of my salvation because of what is written in the Word of God, and I believe that to be true. I have no confidence in my feelings, no confidence in my emotions. All my confidence is in the truth, the Word of God. All my confidence is in the persons of God, the persons of Christ, Christ my Savior. And let me tell you this, devil, won't you look at him? Why don't you look at him? Just look. Look and see how lovely he is. Look and see how lovely the Lord Jesus Christ is. He loved me with an eternal love. Can you believe that? He loved me with an eternal love. He's loved me so much that he bore in his body my sin upon Calvary's tree. And just look how lovely he is and see how much love he has for poor sinners just like me. Yeah, you're right. I'm not worthy. My God has loved me anyway. And through his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's called me to eternal life. And how I love Christ. I want to think about Christ more, more and more each and every day. I want to know him in a greater fashion. I want you to look at Christ. Look at my Savior. And I guarantee you, I'm not encouraging you to talk to the devil, but metaphorically, I hope you get it. Don't write me a letter. Don't come talk to me afterwards about the metaphor. I'm just giving you a figure of speech or, or an analogy to put your mind around, right? But if you start speaking to the devil so much about your love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what he's going to do? He's going to flee from your presence immediately because he doesn't want to listen to it. He doesn't want to hear it. And if you start speaking the truth to yourself, to your conscience, inform your conscience of biblical truth about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fact that you're standing before him doesn't depend on your performance, but upon Christ's life, Christ's victory over sin and death and the devil, then your accusing conscience is going to be biblically and doctrinally informed, and your accusing conscience is also going to be silenced by the biblical truth. Your conscience is only good as it's biblically informed. We all have one. A lot of times it stinks. It doesn't work very well because it's not biblically informed. It's informed by the spirit of the age. I heard that this happens or that happens or I'm worried about this thing or that thing. Have a biblically informed conscience and you can silence your accusing conscience. Have I ever told you that we need to stop listening to ourselves and start speaking to ourselves? Have I ever said that to you? You remember. Good for you. We need to speak truth to ourselves, doctrinal truth. Doctrine that has to be understood, properly applied into our lives. Because we only live to the level of our understanding of the truth. 
We only live to the level of the understanding of truth. We certainly can never expect to live at a higher level than our understanding of biblical truth. Again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So no one's above God. God's the one who justifies. No one but God absolves or quits the sinner. No one but God blots out our sin. No one but God removes our guilt. No one but God imputes righteousness. Response? Hallelujah, right? Thank him. Praise him. Your eternal destiny is secure in Christ. Because God himself, the supreme judge, the lawgiver, found a way to satisfy the demands of the law while not violating his holy nature, his own justice, or his own righteousness, and that's through Christ. And once you're in Christ, you are forever in Christ. Isn't that good? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Question number four. Verse verse 34. Who's the one who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Now, up to this point in the study, everything that we've been talking about in chapter 8 here concerning our salvation, everything has been done by God. It's all God's work. God's predestination, God's calling, God's justifying, God glorifying. And all the questions have been pretty much along the same line. If God's for us, who can be against us? If God's for us, who can be against us? If God didn't spare his own son but gave him up, therefore God gives all things freely and graciously, who's going to bring charge against God's elect, those whom God loves? But now you get to this verse, 34, things change a bit. The question here is the person, or in this fourth question, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, he becomes preeminent. Verse 34 is about what Christ has done, what he is doing. Now, if the devil can't bring an accusation against us that will stand, if our consciences can't do that, bring a legal accusation against us, and God certainly is not going to at the same time justify us and condemn us at the same time. The question that's out there, is it possible that perhaps Christ himself, the one who brought us into salvation, is it possible that he could send us back out of salvation? That's really the question behind the scene. I mean, the Bible says many places that God has given judgment over to the Son, right? John 5.22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. John 5.27, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. An argument might come up that says something along the lines of, although God justifies us, judgment uh, has been committed to the Son, is it not possible for him to bring some kind of charge against us? He is a person. Maybe he'd bring a charge against us because of the way he was treated in the world. Maybe he'd bring a charge against us because of the way we treat him. Could Christ bring a condemnation against us? Could he bring a charge against us and somehow we lose our salvation? And again, Paul's going to go on to answer the question here by saying, not only does God not bring a charge against us, but neither does Christ. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes, next two words, for us. For us. Do you really think that Christ, the one who intercedes on our behalf for us, is all of a sudden going to turn against us? I mean, the the whole proposition is ludicrous. Just like the Father can't be at the same time both the interceding for us and condemning us, 
Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, the one who's our resurrection and life, our intercessor, our mediator, he likewise won't do the same thing. He won't bring a charge against us because everything he's done in his intercession has been for us. Now, as our intercessor, as our mediator, again, the next section here as it unfolds, there's, uh, in particular, this verse, there's four things, again, that prove God's love for us. And, and four things more that pile up on the pile that's already there of our eternal security. So now Paul's turning our attention to the work of Christ, the mediatorial work. Going to give four more reasons why those who've been justified can never lose their salvation and, again, are free from condemnation. And again, I think it's really important we grasp the point here. As, as Paul tells us these four things, uh, the stress is not so much on what Christ did or what happened to Christ. That, those are important. But I think the stress, the emphasis being made is that in each of these points that he brings up is that Christ did it, again, these two words, for us. He did it for us. Each one was done for us as Christ intercedes on our behalf for us. So these things happened, these things Christ did uh, because of his relationship to us. All, all of these things occurred to Christ because these are what Christ came into the world to do for us, for his people. So again, this next part that unfolds is much more than just the incidents of the history of the life of Christ while he was on the earth. It's really about his mediatorial intercessory work as our representative. So what are the four things? First, Christ died. Secondly, Christ was raised from the dead. Third, Christ right now sits thrown at the place of exaltation at the Father's right hand. And number four, Christ became or continues to be our intercessor. Christ continues to be our intercessor. Who's the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, rather yes, who is raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, you can take a big breath because we're not going to go into it tonight. But Lord willing, next time we will, and kind of a quick overview of what's coming, and don't check out, keep listening. Christ's death provides payment for our sin, again, forever freeing us of of our uh, condemnation. That's what's coming. Christ's resurrection proved his claim to be the Son of God and proved victory over sin and death. Again, Romans 5, 24, or 4, Romans 4, verse 25 says that Christ's death was accepted by the Father. The text says he was delivered up for our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. Third point that he's going to bring forward is the fact that Christ now sits at the right hand of the Father. Again, he shows, he sits in a position of intercession. He sits in a position of power and honor. Uh, and again, the fact that he's sitting, no high priest, you know that no high priest ever sat down at the temple. This one sits. Why? Because his work is finished. Uh, there's no way to improve on it. There's nothing more that needs to be added. And then Christ continues to be our intercessor in his work of atonement. Right? His work of atonement is finished, but he's still working on our behalf. He's still ministering to us. So when we look at what Christ has done for us and what Christ is doing for us, would we ever come to the conclusion that he might be against us? For us to once again fall under condemnation, that would mean that Christ would have to stop caring for us. That means that Christ would have to get up from his exalted position, 
that he'd have to come back. He'd have to descend from heaven back to earth. He'd have to go back into the grave and die again. He'd have to go back and once again be placed on the cross. And then instead of dying as a substitute for men, he'd have to come down from the cross before he acted as our mediator and our substitute. He had to have to refuse the cross and again refuse to come under the condemnation, uh, our condemnation, and then that's how we would lose our salvation. And for us to come again under the condemnation of God and lose our salvation, that would mean that Christ would not only have to come back and undo everything that he's already done, that means that he'd have to reject the eternal plans and purposes of God. He'd have to reject God's plan to set his redeeming love on, a, on mankind, and he'd have to reject and go against the Trinitarian plan established before the world began. So could Christ be against us? Again, the whole suggestion is ludicrous. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. It's a doctrine of assurance. It's meant to give you great joy, great hope, great certainty of your eternal salvation if you're a Christian. Again, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Answer overwhelmingly is what? No one. Because the Supreme Court of the universe, the Supreme Judge of the universe, has already made a declaration. He's already declared the believing sinner justified and righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. Tremendous hope, tremendous joy. What a Savior. Not encourage you to speak to the devil, but next time he comes up, you might want to just tell him how much you love the Lord Jesus Christ and how wonderful he is. And the next time your conscience starts accusing you, accusing you, you might want to inform your conscience biblically of the truth. Start speaking to yourself. Not listening to yourself. The hymn writer Zinzendorf, in a translation by Wesley, I actually found two different versions of this translation. I'm going with the second one. I like it just a bit better. He says, Bold shall I stand in that great day, cleansed, redeemed, no debt to pay, for by your cross absolved I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Again, the focus is on Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful for this wonderful truth that there's nothing or no one can ever separate us from your love. We're humbled by that truth. It's not an issue to cause us to be boastful or to brag, but it's an issue to humble us again to the dust that you have been so kind to us through Christ. We honor you. We worship you. We adore you. We love you. Help us to walk according to truth, informing our conscience of what you say to be true, not allowing our faulty conscience or our feeling to try to direct the day, but may your word direct the day always. Thank you for the encouragement and the blessing of our fellowship in the morning and the evening and then the events that are going to take place in a little while. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Take your handles, please, and turn to number 178. Number 178 is a hymn that oftentimes we <clears throat> just say for Easter, but this is perfect for just this sermon and for all time. Hallelujah, what a Savior. 178, let's stand as we sing. Mm-hmm.